Good morning to you all. We're going to be in the book of Jonah, if you want to turn there. I'm not actually going to read anything, I just want to see if you can find Jonah. Uh, a couple of years ago, I started a study on the minor prophets, and I understand you guys are doing the same thing here. Um, I did it because, literally because I had never taught systematically through the minor prophets, and I just wanted to do something I hadn't done before. And then COVID hit, and it was like the most appropriate thing I had ever done in my life. It, look, I, it made me look like a genius, but honestly, it wasn't true. Um, and so one of the studies, we got through the book of Micah before I came here. Um, but one of the studies we did was Jonah, and Jonah really gave me a new, new opportunity to appreciate the grace and work of God. And, um, and so what I want to do here with you basically this morning is to do an overview of Jonah. We're not going to really dig into anything. I trust you know the story pretty well. Um, but we're going to just do a quick, uh, quick view of this book, a quick overview of this book, and see what God is doing. Uh, the book of Jonah is probably the best known of the minor prophets. It is the only minor prophet that is fully in narrative format, meaning that it's a story. So it's a lot easier to read it. It's a lot easier to follow it. Uh, kids tend to have Sunday school presentations. Cool songs are written about Jonah and the deep blue sea and all of those types of things that you, you see with it. Um, but it is also the most attacked book in the whole Bible. There are a number of reasons why it's attacked, but Frank Gabaline says that the real problem of this book for those who oppose the book of Jonah is simply the supernatural nature of the book. Um, you have a story of a man who is swallowed whole, uh, surviving for three days, and then is vomited out onto, onto dry land, and, and honestly, that's just more than modern educated man can take, isn't it? Uh, and you know what? That's not even the greatest miracle in the book. Because the greatest miracle in the book is that hundreds, tens or hundreds of thousands of people get saved. And by far that is a greater, um, a greater picture of the miraculous that takes place. Uh, so why should we believe this story of Jonah? Why should we believe it? Well, Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40 says, But he answered them, Jesus answered them, And even an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there's two things I want us to just catch from this. Number one, Jesus believed that this was real. I think that's a very important point. Jesus believed that this was a real story. He didn't look at this as a moral story of some sort or a story that simply told moral, moral things, moral lessons. But then secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, he tied this, what he viewed as a real experience, to his death and resurrection. If Jonah didn't take place, the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus was wrong. And that should cause you all sorts of pause. If Jesus was wrong about this, what is he right about? All right? And if Jesus, and, and Jesus ties it into the resurrection, and, and if Jesus is wrong about the three days and three nights of Jonah in the heart of the, of the fish, then why should we trust him about the three days and three nights in the heart of the earth rising again the third day? 
it brings into serious question the reality of the New Testament. As Paul says, whoops, I'm not used to, anyway, forget it. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice what Paul says here. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And basically, Christianity stands or falls on this doctrine. If there's no resurrection of Christ, if Jesus was just a good teacher, well, actually, if there's no resurrection of Christ, Jesus wasn't a good teacher. In fact, he was the most evil false prophet that ever lived. And we need to understand that. It's either all true or it's all false. And when people say Jesus had good moral teachings, we'll accept the good moral teachings of Jesus, but we reject the spiritual teachings of Jesus or the literalness of his, of his resurrection and those things. Those things don't go together. You, you have to have it all or none. And so Jesus was either a monster where he is indeed who he says he is, and we must believe what he says because we're going to give an account for what he says. There's another study and another reason that I want us to study this book. And as we look at the book of Jonah, what we find is a man who was, both at the beginning and at the end of the book, a bigoted prophet. When you look at the book of Jonah, we'll talk about this a little bit more, The real miracle in Jonah isn't about his protection in the belly of a great fish, nor even the conversion of a pagan city. The real story here is not about Jonah. It's about the God of Jonah. It's about how God sovereignly teaches Jonah through Jonah's experiences more about himself and confirms Jonah to the likeness of Christ. And if you notice this last verse on this slide, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, This is the story of Jonah. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to look at this morning. It's what I want us to consider this morning. That's what God was doing with Jonah. That's what God's doing with you and me if you're a believer in Christ this morning. God is conforming us to the image of Christ. God is taking a bunch of bigoted, wretched sinners and turning them into people who are like Christ. And that's what we're going to try to look at. Now, I am absolutely, where's Matt? I am absolutely not a techie, okay? They call these things smartphones, and that assumes that you have to be smart. And I'm doomed, okay? Amen. If I want to, if my computer freezes, what do you do? If my computer or your phone freezes, what do you do? First thing you do is turn it off and turn it on. Now, as long as, it, as long as that works, I can handle it. But if that doesn't work, I'm doomed. Okay, and then I have to get Matt or Josh or somebody like that to help me, all right? Sometimes you have to use a more radical start over. You have to reinstall Windows or you have to erase all your data and rebuild your computer or your phone and reprogram the errant machine. And this is what we're going to look at this morning, is God's reprogramming of his prophet. I want us to see what God is doing. He is going to reprogram the prophet, and we're going to see three things. 
First of all, we're going to see the need for reprogramming. Secondly, we're going to see the means of reprogramming. And thirdly, we'll look at God's accomplishments through this reprogramming. So as we look at the book of Jonah, we see a prophet. And there's a lot to like about this book. I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, we sing about it and we, we talk about it. And there's a lot of really interesting and cool things. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 is probably the most famous verse in the book. Uh, Salvation is of the Lord. All of chapter 2 deals with the repentance, and we can learn much about the, God, the work of God through that. Chapter 3 is an encouraging chapter in which we see tens or hundreds of thousands of people coming to Christ, the greatest missionary endeavor ever. And you look at chapter 1, and you're even encouraged to see sailors who had nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever or, for, or with Judaism whatsoever coming to Christ. Amazing book, and there's a lot to like about this book. But chapters 1 and chapter 4 contain some real disturbing, real disturbing information. First of all, we see Jonah's rebellion. And if we want to have a bit of an understanding of what's going on, if you notice in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And I'm going to just stop there. But I want you to notice on that map, as you're looking at it, the red line represents what God said to do. And the black line represents what Jonah did. Okay? Does anybody think that there might be closeness to, to Jonah's obedience here? Okay? Um, you know, go to Pittsburgh and preach against it, and he goes to Toledo. I mean, that's the kind of picture of what you've got going on. In fact, if, you, if, if we're right, scholars aren't absolutely sure where Tarshish lies, but most believe it was in southern Spain. And if that's true, basically Jonah couldn't have gone any further. He reached the end of the earth as he knew it, and so he went as far away from this as he possibly could. Um, as we look at this thought and as we consider it, what I want us to really focus on here is this line where he says, he rose up to go to flee from the presence of the Lord. Do you know that Psalm 139 was written before Jonah existed? Look at what it says here. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, that's probably picturing the dawn, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah gives you a picture of what often we face, and Josh kind of testified of this in his, in his testimony. Jonah's theoretical theology was far better than his practice of theology. Jonah knew Psalm 139, no doubt. Jonah knew a lot of the Bible. In fact, Jonah chapter 2 is a quotation of, of, of other Old Testament passages. And when we look at these types of things, we often see similar things in ourselves. We see people who, who, who know the Bible. We're Bible-believing churches. And yet, in practice, we don't practice the Bible. And that's what Jonah was. He actually seems to have felt that... Um, he could get away from the presence of God. Now, I imagine that he was, his thinking was, 
Uh, the presence of God is the temple, the Shekinah glory. And so if I get away from Jerusalem, I'll get away from the presence of God. But let me suggest to you that in his thinking, he seems to be saying, if I can go far enough west, God will give up on me. Jonah didn't know his God. Jonah didn't know his God. And before we criticize Jonah too far, let me just draw a, a quick application to ourselves. Have you ever done anything because no one sees you? Have you ever thought secretly, I can get away with this and even God can't really do anything or won't do anything about it? You're acting like Jonah. I'm acting like Jonah when we do that. We tend to think that we can get away with it because no one's looking. When I say no one's looking, I'm talking about you. Is the presence of God everywhere? <laughs> do I really think that I've gotten away with it? I'm watching something on the internet. Nobody's around. Well, God's there. And I become a practical atheist when I start thinking in that way. Now, as disturbing as Jonah's action was in chapter 1, I want you to flip over to chapter 4. And I want you to look at the reason Jonah gave for why he disobeyed. James Montgomery Boyce gave three possible explanations, or gave two possible explanations, as to why Jonah might have resisted this commission. He said, perhaps it was because the, this mission was difficult. It was filled with difficulty. And certainly it was difficult. Excavations of Nineveh have found that the city, well, chapter 4, verse 11 says that the city contained 120,000 small children. How big was the city? We know from archaeology that the city wall was wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side. It was huge. It was massive. The idea of going there and preaching to this people who considered the God of the Bible as irrelevant would seem ludicrous. To be despised and mocked seemed to be inevitable and the least of his problems. But that is not what the Bible says was the reason that Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. Perhaps it was because it was dangerous, and it was dangerous. Let me show you this verse in Nahum. This is a description of Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end of the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Boyce said, and I, I think this was an interesting speculation, he said that what God did to Jonah by sending Jonah to Nineveh at this particular time would have been like God calling a Jew out of New York City during World War II and sending them to Berlin. That's, the, that's how difficult, how dangerous this particular area was. And yet that's not what the Bible says was the reason Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him? What was it that displeased Jonah? I know I'm 
being unfair, you didn't have a chance to read the end of chapter 3. What happened at the end of chapter 3? Nineveh repented. And it displeased... Wait a minute. The greatest missionary endeavor ever displeased the missionary. Anybody find any contradiction in that idea? But notice... And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Back before, in chapter 1, verse 0. Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. What the Bible says is that Jonah knew that God would be merciful, and he didn't want God to be merciful to these people. Nineveh was the enemy of Israel, and Jonah wanted God to judge them, not save them. And this is by far the most disturbing part of this book. A believer in Yahweh wanting to condemn people to hell, because that's what he was doing. And he was mad when they weren't. Today we speak of racism, and races, racism is whenever we treat a group of people poorly because of skin color or ethnicity or some other type of characteristic. Jonah was doing that. It wasn't because of skin color per se, but Jonah was against a people who were simply different than he was. And frankly, it was ugly. It was really ugly. Now, sin is ugly. It's ugly in the unsaved, right? When we look at the unsaved, we tend, that's where we tend to focus our view of, of sin, about all those wicked people out there. And it's ugly. We saw the description of, of Assyria. It's ugly. But it's far more ugly when it's found in the saved. Ephesians 5, 3, this isn't talking about racism, it's talking about sexual sins, but he says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness may it not even be named among you as is proper among saints, as is common, as is normal. Don't let people associate these types of sins with the people of God. Don't let sexual sins be identified as normal in the church. Don't let racism be seen as is normal in the church. It's ugly when it's found in the unbeliever, but it's not at all appropriate when it's found in the saints. And so let me ask a question just before we move off this first point. What ugly sin is in your life? What unbecoming sin characterizes you to the point that when others see you, they find it offensive that a Christian would do that? Jonah showed that he needed reprogramming, and so do we. And so the second thing we want to look at is the fact that God has the means of reprogramming. Now, when I want to reprogram my computer or reinstall Windows, as I've already said, I normally have to get the help of someone else. But God does not need anybody else's help. God is fully capable of bringing about the reprogramming of his people. The phrase in the book of Jonah, the Lord appointed or the Lord prepared, depending on your translation, runs throughout the book. It's used in chapter 1 of the storm and the fish. It's used in chapter 2 where the Lord spoke to the fish. 
In chapter 4, the Lord appointed a plant, a worm, and an east wind. And what we want to do is to look at this idea of how God controls and uses his creation in reprogramming the prophet. Now, the first thing we want to look at here is that when Jonah ran away, he thought he'd gotten away with it. He thought he was in good shape. He thought that he could continue to run away from the Lord and the Lord couldn't do anything or wouldn't do anything to him. But he conveniently forgot that God controls the storm. And it's interesting, as, as you look in chapter 1, when God sends the storm, what, did, what was the purpose of God sending the storm? Think about this just for a second with me. Was God turning the ship around? No. He was turning the prophet around. The ship kept going, evidently. <laughs> when the storm ceased, I imagine they went on to Joppa, or to, to Tarshish, rather, and, uh, and continued on. But he was turning his, his prophet around. And what we need to see here in this, in this portion is, first of all, just several verses that will illustrate this point. God controls creation. Now, that's an obvious statement, but I want us to understand it. God controls the creation. We see this in a number of places in the, in the Bible. Um, Matthew chapter 8, 26. I would love this one. I would just love to have been a, a mouse on this boat. And he said to them, why are you afraid? You know, to catch this. These are, these are seasoned seamen. Okay? They're fishermen. They're used to storms. And this storm was so ferocious that they, they despaired of life. And Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. And, and, and they, they, they are so desperate, they wake him up. And, and Jesus says, why did you wake me up? I was having a good sleep. You should have let me sleep. I told you we were going to the other side. And you didn't believe me. Why are you afraid? It's, I think it's fascinating. He actually rebukes the disciples before he rebukes the wind. So the, the boat's doing this. Why are you so afraid? And he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You ever been on a boat in a storm? Or in some sort of rough water? Like even just this last couple of days. If you've been on Lake Erie, it would have been like this, you know. I remember going on a boat, just going across a, a, someplace in Canada. We were, we were on a boat, and you were kind of walking like this just to get to the, you know, get a cup of coffee and then you had to hold the coffee without spilling it on the way back. And, and, and when, they, when Jesus said, peace be still, when he rebuked the waves and the wind, there was a great calm. Can you almost picture them falling over because suddenly the boat isn't rocking? <laughs> or think of Daniel and the lion's den or the fish and the coin that Peter put his hook on put his hook in and that, that fish just happened to grab a coin and just happened to jump onto Peter's fish hook and Peter pulled him out and paid the temple tax with it. Not only does God control his creation, but he actually uses his creation. In 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16, it says he's, that, that speaking of Baal, Balaam, he says he forsook the right way and they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke. 
God used his creation to rebuke, um, to rebuke Balaam. God is able to control his creation for the protection and help of his people. You see that in the case of Daniel and the lion's den that we talked about earlier. You see it in this case of the three friends of, Nebuchadnezzar, of uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar when he tried to uh, force them to worship his idol. And they refused and said, we're not going to bow down before your idol. We're going to stand. And, and when, the, when he, they were thrown into the fire, what happened? Nothing. Not even, a, not even the, the, the clothes retained the smell of the smoke. You talk about a miracle. And God is able to use, he not only controls, but he's able to use his, his, his creation to protect his people. But in Jonah, he uses his creation to rebuke his people. When he protected Daniel from the lion's mouth, he shut the mouths of the lion. When he protected the three friends in the fiery furnace, he used creation for the protection of his people. But in the book of Jonah, he uses his creation to correct his people. And God is fully able to do either of those. Donald Gray Barnhouse made an interesting contrast. You have up here Exodus chapter 2. Remember Jochebed? Jochebed was the mother of Moses, and she by faith, Hebrews tells us, hid Moses until it was impossible to hide him any longer. She built an ark and placed her baby in the ark and placed it in the water, and when Pharaoh's daughter opened the ark, she found the baby, and her feminine heart went out to the cries of the baby. And then something interesting happened. What happened? She paid Jochebed to raise her own child. This poor Israelite mother was paid to raise her child. How many of you are parents? How many of you would like it if you were paid to raise your children? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? You know, the government says, we're going to pay you to raise your children. That's what happened. She was given wages to raise her child because she had faith in the Lord. But Lotus back in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee from the, from, unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare. And Barnhouse made this comment. Jochebed received wages for doing God's will. Jonah paid wages for disobeying and Barnhouse concluded, when we are obedient to God's will, he pays the fare. But when we're running from God, we pay the fare. It costs to disobey. We may think we're getting what we want, but it always costs to disobey God. Sin all spiritual minds. As a pastor, this breaks my heart. I've watched it on a number of occasions. I've watched it very recently in the last week with a, with a very precious family in my church. Sin dulls people's spiritual understanding. Remember the book of Hebrews says you become as those who need milk and not solid food. It's one thing when a baby needs milk. I mean, that's natural. When an old person needs milk, that's pathetic. It's sad. Those Christians in, in the he book of Hebrews had become spiritually demented 
They had lost spiritual sharpness and were in need of milk instead of solid food. Sin ruins relationships. How many people do you know that have baggage because of former relationships in which sin corrupted the relationship? Oftentimes, irreparably. Sin brings shame as it did with Adam and Eve. And sin brings reprogramming as it did with Jonah. Repeating Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, God is so determined to perfect the good work in us that he will continue to do so with whatever it takes. If we obey, it'll be reasonably pleasant. If we disobey, we'll pay the wages. And that brings us to the last point. God accomplishes through his reprogramming. When we do something, and, and, and we're all this way, generally you, you and I do something, we do something because we're going to do, we want to accomplish something, right? If we're really clever, we may even have two purposes in what we do. But God has multiple purposes in what he does. When he does something, he's got multiple purposes involved in it. And I want to just look at these multiple purposes with you in conclusion to our study today. First of all, he brought about the repentance of Nineveh through the obedience of Jonah. Now, this is the overview part of this, this lesson. When Jonah goes to Nineveh in chapter 3, he goes in obedience, right? He's obedient. God says, rise, go to Nineveh. Instead of going to Tarshish, he goes to Nineveh. God says, preach. He preaches. And that brings about the repentance of the tens or hundreds of thousands of individuals. This bigoted prophet, in spite of his objections, in spite of his resistance, he finally obeys, he finally repents and obeys and goes, and as a result, many are saved. We were at the men's prayer breakfast last, yesterday morning, and someone was praying about how it seems like the end of all things is at hand. Anybody else feel that way besides me? It's kind of like we are in the end days, we are in the last days, and if, we, if Paul was, boy, we're really there and I just wanted to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And then Bob prayed 2 Peter 3.9 that you have up on the screen, that God is not slow to fulfill his promises, but he is not willing that any should perish. And he prayed that we would be better witnesses in these last days for Christ. And it really challenged me. I want to get to heaven. I want to get it over with. Let's go. <laughs> now, let's be witnesses. That's what we need to be. That needs to be our attitude in these last days. We're seeing things disintegrate around us. Yes, we are. We're seeing problems. We're not going to fix them. <laughs> We're not going to fix them. But we can be witnesses. And that was, the, that was one of the thoughts that, that really resonated with me. Jonah 2.9 says, Salvation is of the Lord. And Jonah rejoiced when that salvation involved himself. But when it involved others, he wasn't interested. Isn't that a sad picture? God was saving Nineveh, not just Jonah. God was compassionate, not willing that any, not even this pagan, evil nation should perish. And God delayed judgment then as he is now so as to work out the drawing of his elect to salvation. Number two, he brought about the salvation of the sailors. This is interesting. 
Nineveh was saved as a result of the obedience of God's prophet. If Jonah doesn't disobey and go to Tarshish, what happens to those sailors? And yet, they were part of the elect too. God was saving them not through the obedience of his people, but through the disobedience of his people. Can God redeem that evil thing that you did? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the great stories of the book of Jonah. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, says this, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The greatest tragedy, the greatest travesty of justice that's ever been performed in all the 6,000 or whatever many years that this earth has been in existence brought about the greatest good that has ever happened. Is God doing the same thing through us? Thirdly, he brought glory to himself. In John chapter 9, you remember the story of the man that was born blind and, and the disciples asked him, did he sin or did his parents sin that caused this blindness? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says that the reason this blindness took place in this man's life was to bring glory to God. He used the rebellion of Jonah to bring about the salvation of the sailors. Israel rejected the Messiah and the Gentiles were brought to the gospel. This is not something we possibly could have come up with on our own. But God did, and that's why Paul ends the book of Romans, or the first part of the book of Romans, with chapter 11. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It was the rejection of Israel. that The reason we're sitting here today, every one of us, anybody here that's Jewish of nature? A background? A couple? That would be your whole church if Israel hadn't rejected the gospel. The rest of us, we'd be like the Assyrians with all of the wickedness that was going on. But God consigned all the Jews to disobedience that he might have mercy on all the Gentiles. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has, been, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory. And the final thing he did was he brought about the reprogramming of the prophet. God is going to get his work done. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it with or without your cooperation. Amen. So let's end where we began. God wants to reprogram us all. He wants to take those ugly sins 
that make us look anything but the beautiful bride of Christ that he's going to transform us into being. You, I want to say this respectfully, but if you think about Ephesians chapter 5 in your minds, where Jesus says, Husbands, love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Remember that section he talks about that, that he's going to make the church this sparkling bride. Can I use this reverently? Christ will have his trophy bride, and it's you and me, and the rest of God's people. And God's not going to quit until he has it. We can cooperate in him and see great blessings in our lives, or we can resist him and have painful discipline as a result. Let me turn you to a passage here in Genesis chapter 47. Remember Joseph and Jacob, son and father? They went through some pretty heavy trials, right? And remember in the midst of the trials when Jacob thought Joseph was dead, he made the comment, all these things are against me. And you want to say to Jacob, Jacob, you need to read Romans 8.28. All things are working together for good. But he didn't see that. All he saw was the evil. Joseph, who went through exactly the same trials, different side of it, but went through the same trials, said what? You meant it for evil, but God for good. Now, I want you to pick on this, and I want you to think this. It kind of goes with your theme of Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. Joseph enjoyed the goodness of God in the midst of troubles. Jacob didn't. Even after the plan of God was clear, and he saw it, and he, had, he was restored to Joseph, he was restored to his grandchildren, he was restored, everything was good. In Genesis 47, 9, And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days and years of my sojourning are 130, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Do you get the picture? Jacob couldn't even enjoy the goodness of God. And he lived a miserable, depressed life as a result. Joseph was able to enjoy, even in the midst of prisons, pits, and palaces, he was able to enjoy that's, that's um, a series of lessons um, by Jim Berg. Which one are we? Are we Jacob or Joseph? Are we Jacob or Joseph? Are we enjoying what God's doing, even when it's hard? Or are we overwhelmed by it? The psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43, when you see that psalm, those psalms, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted in me? Hope in God. You know what the psalmist is doing? He's counseling himself. You know what the psalm, you know what Hollywood tells us to do? Listen to your heart. Just watch a Hallmark movie. It will be said at least once in that movie. The psalmist doesn't listen to his heart. The psalmist counsels his heart. 
That's what you and I need to do. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, by testing, by, by experiencing, by examining, you may discern the will of God. That it is what is good and acceptable and perfect. The, the concept here in Romans chapter 12 is, as you're going through the difficulties and the trials and the, and the testings in life, you will see by experience that God's will is best especially if you take Joseph's attitude. Now, I want to conclude by just addressing anybody that might be here as an unbeliever. Maybe you've rejected the book of Jonah because of the impossibility of the events of Jonah. First of all, let me just give you two scientific discoveries just for thought. The Encyclopedia Britannica gives two examples of men in the last 200 years who were swallowed alive by either a whale or a whale shark and lived to tell about it. Those in the last 200 years. Secondly, one, the one I find even more convincing is this. In the remains of ancient Nineveh, it's been discovered that there was a mound called Nebi Iwanis. I don't, I'm sure I'm butchering the name, the pronunciation. That means the prophet Jonah. But the main reason that you should believe this book is because Jesus says it's true. And the most important reason that you should believe is that God commands you to. John the Baptist made the statement in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You're commanded to by God who is going to judge the living and the dead. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to come together with these, your people. And I just pray, Father, that you would be helping us even as we encounter this book, that, Father, we would just learn the lessons that you have for us in it. Lord, we confess where we are stubborn like Jonah. We confess where we are sinful and sinning in ugly manners like Jonah did. We confess where we're bigoted like he was, where we're caring more about our own salvation than about others. Help us, Father, as we go from this place to allow you to work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.